Well, good evening, and welcome to Transition to Hope, Fireside Number 5. Uh, we're here on February 19 at the studio of Cornerstone Baptist Church on 12 Mile Road in Roseville, Michigan. And tonight, or today, we're going to talk about the nature of God, one God, three persons. And um, <laughs> uh, we're going through uh, the book, uh, uh, introducing Christianity to Mormons. Our series is called Introducing Christianity to Latter-day Saints. Thank you for joining us. Uh, some of you have already seen some of the earlier episodes. If you, ha- if you haven't, if you haven't seen some of the earlier firesides, I encourage you to do that. If you haven't had an opportunity to take a look at the book that we're going through, I'd encourage you to do that as well because we're not able to cover all of the material that's in the book, but we will hit some of the high points and hopefully pique your interest and send you back into the book and uh, looking a little more deeply. The book is written by my friend Eric Johnson, who is a, a colleague uh, at, of Bill McKeever, uh, who is the founder of Mormon Research Ministry uh, out of Utah, mrm.org, and that not only is a radio show and a podcast uh, but it's an archive of a tremendous library of articles that are well-researched, well-documented, well-referenced, uh, that can d- allow you to, to dig deeper on a lot of very fine points uh, as we consider the differences between Christianity, sort of New Testament-style Christianity, and the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. So welcome. Uh, what we've done so far is we have looked at uh, several chapters. Uh, we, we, we did an introductory. Our, our fireside number one was actually an introduction to the series. And then we did, uh, we spent two firesides talk, just talking about the Bible. Uh, it's talking about why the Bible is reliable, why it is inerrant, why it is uh, a sacred text, uh, and uh, why it is translated correctly. And that's, of course, a reference to the Articles of Faith of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter day Saints dating back to what's called the Wentworth Letter, and uh, where, where it, it declares that the Book of Mormon is true and the Bible is true as far as it is translated correctly. And we've taken the time, and Eric Johnson in the book has taken the time to show, yes, the Bible is translated correctly, so where are we now? And where are we now is we're, we're digging into the Bible and we're finding out uh, some amazing things that it has to say to us about Jesus Christ, about God as creator, and about salvation uh, according to the gospel of Jesus Christ as found in the Bible. So we spent uh, some time looking at the Bible, uh, sort of chapter 1 and chapter 2, and then we looked at the existence of God, reasonable reasons for belief. And... Um, uh, we covered a lot of territory in, uh, fire, in that fireside. Uh, to, today, we're going to talk about two chapters uh, in the book. We're going to be talking about uh, chapter four, the nature of God, attributes worthy of worship. And there is a little bit of a difference in how Christians, sort of Bible-informed Christians, uh, think about worship and how worship is thought about in, in, uh, in the LDS tradition. So we want to articulate, we want to see those differences. And again, um, we're not here to, I'm not trying to tell you how to believe or what to believe uh, or what not to believe, 
but I am here to show you resources and help you develop a, a, a real curiosity, a real hunger for learning about what God has to say. And it's our confidence that as you do that, you'll discover a real garden of truth within the, within the Bible. So uh, we want to encourage you to do that. So we'll talk about the nature of God, attributes worthy of worship. And we'll, while we're at it, since the, the nature of God also picks up a, a, the idea of Trinity, we want to talk about that. And that is also a point of difference. And again, our idea is to say, here, here are the differences. Uh, go do your homework <laughs> and figure it out uh, as you go along. And our prayer is that the Holy Spirit will open up truth to you in ways that you might not have even expected. Uh, as, as we do these firesides, uh, they actually accompany some other uh, podcasts that are called Nutshells and some interviews and some other things uh, that are all available on our YouTube channel. And we really encourage you, really encourage you to subscribe to the YouTube channel, hit the, the bell for the notifications. Um, this uh, helps you to be kept abreast of the different things that are rolling out from our platform, Transition to Hope. It also helps us as people are finding their way to our content. It helps our content become more accessible to others as well. If you have any comments, uh, questions, criticisms, disagreements, uh, anything you care to talk about, we'd love to hear from you. And the best way to do that is the Transition to Hope uh, uh, the Transition to Hope uh, webpage, transitiontohope.org slash contact. Uh, and you can, you can uh, leave a message from there. You can even leave a voicemail if you care to. All right, any questions from last week uh, from anyone or anything? I had one thing that uh, I've been thinking about from last week, and I was thinking about how I kind of flubbed it when Benjamin asked the question, uh, how does... Uh, how does the uh, cosmological argument stack up uh, to the doctrines of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints? And I kind of hemmed and hawed. I said, I don't really think it does. Uh, but I thought about it some more, and I, I want to say it doesn't stack up at all because the idea of the cosmological argument is that everything that exists has a cause. Everything that is material, every movement uh, has a cause. And... Uh, if you're starting from the premise that everything was already there all, all along, sort of in eternity past, the cosmological argument it doesn't have anything to say. There's nothing, it's, it's a mismatch. It doesn't work. Um, and so the question is, how, how intuitive is it? Uh, how much sense does it make to you to uh, rely upon the premise of the cosmological argument, which philosophers have relied upon for thousands of years, and that is premise number one, um, uh, everything that, that changes, everything that exists has to have a cause, and then premise number two, everything exists that we know about, and so number three, there has to have been a cause, there has to have been, if you will, a creation uh, from an uncaused cause, and the only way to understand that is to think about God as creator. So I've thought about that. I don't know, maybe, maybe you have chosen not to think about it and now have been forced to think about it more than you want to. Uh, but that was a great question from Benjamin, and, uh, and I was really grateful. I've actually read some Mormon uh, apologists who have tried to deal with the cosmological argument, 
but I just wasn't satisfied with the logic and, and the way it was presented. One of the things that, that is, is missing in, in, in any effort to disregard the cosmological argument is the second law of thermodynamics. And the second law of thermodynamics is basically the universe is winding down. So if you look at the fact the universe is winding down, you also look at the fact the universe is expanding. And all you have to do is, well, let's, let's reverse engineer that and see where it takes us. And it takes us to a very beginning. Uh, recent uh, astrophysicists, astrophysicists have called it the singularity. But it's basically, there's a starting point. Now what do you do with that? And, uh, and that's where we get notions of Big Bang and everything else. But Big Bang doesn't even make sense if there isn't a Big Banger, uh, if there isn't an intentional creation of, of matter and energy and time. OK. All right, enough of that sort of out there philosophy. Let me, let me get back to what, what we're really about here more than anything else. What we're really about here more than anything else is to serve, to be a servant to, 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 to provide service to, help to, resources to those who have, for whatever reason, had questions on their shelf that have just gotten to be a little too burdensome and their shelf has, is starting to sag or maybe has collapsed or tipped over questions that relate to the truth claims of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and, if you will, the Mormon religion. And, uh, and uh, most people uh, who even are, in, who are nominally in the church, in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, have a lot of things on the, on the shelf, a lot of questions. But people are, are, are finding themselves sort of pulling away because they're not, getting they're not getting satisfactory answers. That's fine. And that's a good, that, you know, if, if you're rigorously investigating things, carry on because that's a, that's a worthwhile endeavor. We're going to be talking about a little bit about learning a little bit later here tonight. But carry on. Um, but uh, along the way, uh, our... Our invitation to you is don't give up on God. In other words, don't throw, if you want to call it, the baby out with the bathwater. Uh, but don't give up on God. Just if you give up on some things about the LDS church, which it has a lot of uh, intermedi intermediaries between you and God. And, and what we want to say is if, if those intermediaries are, are, you're not satisfied with the answers you're getting uh, and you begin to just move that off to the side, well, don't give up on God. Uh, they put themselves in between God and you. So, you know, if you're going to move them to a side, look straight at God. That's the invitation of Jesus Christ, is that you have access to God through your relationship with Jesus Christ. And so, uh, and so uh, we want to be a resource for that adventure. We want to be a resource for, the, for that effort. And so we, we often say, don't give up on God. If you have any questions about that, contact us. Uh, we'd love to have a conversation. We have folks in training who are preparing to be mentors to folks who, who have those kinds of questions, and, uh, and, and we just look forward to that. All right, let's get on with uh, what we want to talk about tonight. We have uh, four topics that we want to cover tonight. We're going to kind of go right through them and, and sort of deliberately. We're going to talk about God's perfection and holiness which is kind of a hot button for in the middle of any kind of discussion between Christians and, and, and uh, uh, Latter-day Saints. We're going to talk about the Trinity, another hot button. We're going to talk about being like God. What does that even mean? And then we're going to talk about worship. 
So while the topics that we're talking about are really fairly theological, uh, they go right to the core between understanding the differences between the, the doctrines and teachings of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and a New Testament biblical approach, uh, which of course uh, uh, would, would, would be uh, not to include a lot of the things that are brought in by the LDS Church, the Book of Mormon, doctrines and, Doctrine and Covenants, and Pearl of Great Price, and all the, the declarations uh, by the various prophets or presidents over the years. So there's a different body of content or knowledge that, that, that Mormons would look to as compared to uh, a, a New Testament-style uh, Christian, a Bible-believing Christian, basically looking at the Bible. And, uh, and so you're going to find some differences. So we're going to talk about that. Starting with God's perfection and holiness. Uh, a verse that is uh, often used by LDS missionaries uh, is... Uh, the verse, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And that's Matthew 5.48. So uh, if you start with the premise that it's our job to be perfect, um, what, what does that really mean? So what does it mean? What do we mean uh, even in that verse? What does it mean that you need to be perfect? Dan? Sure. Pardon me? Mature. mature. Okay. Mature is okay too. <laughs> as long as it's not manure. As long as it's okay. Uh, mature. Okay. So perfect would be an acorn is not a perfect oak tree. Uh, the acorn has to grow into an oak tree to be a perfect oak tree. But it's only an acorn at the beginning. Is that helpful? Is that close enough? Yeah. Mature in the faith. Okay. Mature in Faith, okay. In the faith, okay. Good. Anybody else? When we says when we say perfect, what are we talking about? Yeah, Without Robert. Fault. Without fault, okay. Without fault. Mature in the word of God. Thank you, Kathy. Uh, yeah, okay. Uh, faith and word of God. Okay. Anyone else? I can't see real well, so uh, you might have to speak up if I um, don't acknowledge you. Uh, as many of you know, my background, among other things, I happen to be an attorney and uh, have worked a lot over the years with deeds uh, and, and, and also with uh, title to or ownership of uh, business equipment, factory equipment, other kinds of equipment. Uh, and when we, when, we, when we say that we're going to buy some real estate, whether it's a house or anything else, uh, we say we want to have the title perfected. Well, how do you perfect the title? Well, you, first you, all, you have to do a, a search to make sure there's no liens on it. Nobody has a claim against the real estate. And then you have the deed signed by the seller, and you're going to record it at the Register of Deeds or whatever that office is called in a, in a given state. We're going to record it. What does that do? That puts the world on notice that you are the owner of that real estate. You're, and, that, and by doing that, we say your title is perfected. Um, and so when we say that, we're really saying it is complete, it is completed. There's, there's nothing else to do to assure that uh, your ownership. Okay. Um, 
And we have the same thing with a car, certificate of title. You, we say you have ownership of a car. Well, legally, when you buy a car, legally, the, the ownership transfer is basically when you hand the car keys over. But we know that's not enough. We know there has to be a certificate of title. What does a certificate of title do? It certifies that you have title or that you have ownership. Um, and once that happens, we say that your ownership of that car, your title is perfected. So there is a, a sense of completion that comes along with that word perfect. Uh, uh, and so that, that's a helpful kind of background. So what does it mean when we say God is perfect? What do we mean by that? Lacking nothing. Okay. Lacking nothing. Okay. Anything else? God is perfect. Without fault? Okay, that was over here. We're just going to draw an arrow. Bingo. Okay, yeah. without fault. Good, that's all right. I mean, perfect is perfect. Unchanging. Unchanging, okay. Why, why would it be unchanging? Why would perfect mean unchanging? Right, and you can't add to perfection. Right. If there's true perfection, you can't add to it. Um, that's an important concept, and, and it's really important for us to, to, to understand that difference. So let me take a little bit of a look a little deeper at it. At it. Uh, in Deuteronomy 32, it says the rock, capital R, that's God, or we could even say Jesus, but we'll say God. The rock, his work is perfect for all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. And in Psalm uh, 18, this God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. What we're beginning to see from those verses is that God's perfection isn't just about what God does. It's about who God is. Yes, who, who God is. And so when we go back, and if you remember uh, last time, we talked about some attributes of God. We talked about God's omnipotence, his power. But that includes the idea of his creative power. And so we can say God is, okay, I know I hit the wrong thing. God is perfectly creative, perfectly creative. We also talked about God's, all being all-knowing, or we say omniscient. And that includes the fact he's perfectly conscious of all that is. We are only conscious of whatever we can be aware of, given our faculties. But God is all-knowing, so he is perfectly conscious. Nothing that God can't know because he is perfectly conscious. And then we talked about omnibenevolent or all-good and we can say that God is perfect in community. A lot, a lot of what we think about goodness is goodness is, is interaction. Uh, goodness is how I relate to others. And God is perfect. God is, God is love. So he's perfect in community. He's perfect in community among himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And he's perfect in community in his, in his loving kindness, kindness toward us. So what we've done is we've taken those very basic uh, uh, attributes that are often used. They're used by atheists in debates. 
They're used by, by philosophers and theologians. Just some very simple attributes. And we've kind of opened them up just a little bit to think about creation and consciousness and community. Uh, and when we do that, we can, we can then ask the question, how is my perfection different than God's? How is my perfection different than God's? Any ideas on that? Can I even have perfection? That might be that might yeah, that might be the that might be the sticking point. Well, I don't want to really say I have perfection. That's a good reaction. Yeah, Robert. Well, God is not capable of sin right. or any wrong. Right. We are. That's and we are. God is not capable of sin or wrong, and we are. And that, Robert, is a very key part of what we're doing here today when we talk about the, 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 the doctrines that come, are coming out from the Church of Jesus Christ, the Latter-day Saints. So hold on to that thought, and we'll come back to it. Let me talk about some attributes of human, humans. Yeah. There's a question? Yeah, Fred, go ahead, please, Fred. It talks about there's a gospel righteousness. In other words, that we reflect the... I mean, they said David was a man after God's own heart. If you read Job, it says he was righteous in all his ways, right. but yet he wasn't perfect. Okay, so there is he a... Was, he was reflecting right. God the best he could. He was reflecting God. So Job and David, uh, we, we see this idea of blameworthiness that's used, uh, Fred, as well as righteousness. And it's sometimes helpful to think about horizontal blameworthiness and vertical blameworthiness. And as I go through life, uh, I can aspire to a horizontal blameworthiness by reflecting Christ in my life. By reflecting a, I often talk about it as a, uh, an icon uh, on your desktop, on your computer. And if you click on the icon, it takes you into the program. Our goal is to be, a, and this is actually a word that's used in, the, in Philippians, uh, the idea we want to be icons so that when somebody clicks on us, they see Christ. And, and, so, uh, and, and then there's also the, the vertical. When God looks at us, if we are followers of Christ, who is he seeing? He's seeing Christ's perfection, not mine. The imputed righteousness of Christ. So that's exactly right. Thank you for that. Yes, Dan. If, if we're going to use, just say, for the maturity aspect of the point of perfection, we are constantly trying to grow and right. become more like him. Right. He is already, he can't, he can't know. Any, he's, he's perfect. That, he's no okay. Wrong. There's no more growth. Okay. And, 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 and Dan, you're absolutely right. Uh, we can grow. Uh, as a matter of fact, you're, you're, you're kind of uh, moving ahead of me. Uh, my, my next thing here is we, we are able to create imperfectly. Um, uh, but we're able to we do a good job of creating things, but we do that imperfectly because we're not God. And we're able to be conscious sufficiently, sufficiently what? Sufficiently to, to see, as we saw uh, last week, uh, to see the reflection of God in nature. And to be able to read and understand the Word of God, or if, if somebody is illiterate, to have that taught, to proclaimed to them, that it is accessible to us. Just as 
the universe is accessible. Uh, uh, astrophysicists talk about how perfectly we are situated uh, where we are in the Milky Way galaxy where there's an opening, like a window out to the universe that if we were anywhere else, literally anywhere else in the Milky Way galaxy, we would not have that open window to the, to the universe. So the universe is accessible to us. God's creation is accessible to us. Um, but then the other one, uh, is we're able to choose. Um, we can choose selfishly or selflessly. Uh, and so we have that ability. So those are, those are attributes of human beings. All right, now let me just, I'm going to put that aside. Let me, I, I got to build, I got to build the foundation here. So I got to talk about another word. And it's a loaded word. And it's the word holy. What do we mean by Holy. You want to give it a try? Set apart. Set apart. That's the, that's the, that's the, the uh, if you want to say, the dictionary definition. A lot of times people think it's holy. They think holier than thou is that I'm, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a goody two-shoes and, and I'm holier than thou. That's really, a, it has nothing to do with the word holy. The real definition of the word holy, as Dan has said, um, is set apart. Set apart. Okay. So that... When we say God is holy, we're saying uh, God is something else. God is something uh, in another league, in another quantum, in another transcendence. God is way more. I keep waving my hand in front of the camera. I apologize for that. Uh, if you're trying to watch this live or uh, uh, on, uh, all you see is my hand waving. I apologize for that. Especially if you, I don't think you're doing any close-ups, so I don't have to go like this. Uh, but... Uh, but God is separate from us. He transcends our, our understanding of our existence. And, uh, and so we can read in Leviticus, For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. I am separate from you. Uh, you shall not defile yourselves with any swarming thing that crawls in the ground. See, what, why is that thrown in there? It's like this little rule, like don't crawl around on the ground. No, God is, I am up here, I am majestic, I am sovereign over everything, and, 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 and you have a tendency as a human being, you want to get down in the dirt. We often say, get down in the gutter, you know, get down in the dirt. You say, don't do that. And so it's, 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 it's literal language, it's also metaphorical language. For I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. And that, and that really, that's the whole motif in the whole theme of the book of Leviticus is that if you are my people, uh, our Mosaic covenant, which is different than the Abrahamic covenant, but our Mosaic covenant is be my people. And in fact, I'm going to help you. I'm going to show you how that, what that looks like. And that's the law in the Old Testament. And, uh, and Jesus came to fulfill that law. Uh, he, he was able to fulfill that law. No other human being was ever, ever, ever able to fulfill that law. Every human being, every once in a while, finds himself down in the gutter or down in the dirt. Jesus did not. And so that, that was an important part of the Old Testament is this idea of holiness. In the New Testament, uh, Peter uh, quotes Leviticus when he says, but as he who called you is holy, you also... Be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. That's a quote right there from Leviticus. So we have this idea of perfection. Uh, 
the idea that, that, that God is perfect and we aspire to perfection, but in a, in a, in a, in a horizontal uh, world that we live in, but in a vertical world that we live in, when we're trusting Christ, we're relying upon, as uh, I think Fred and, and Dan and others may have said, is relying upon the attribution of perfection to us through Christ. Uh, and that we rely upon Christ for that. Okay, so, uh, so we've talked about perfection and we've talked about holiness. Why is God's perfection and holiness so important? I mean, why, okay, um, there it is. Why is that even important? If, if my job is to live in a way that honors Christ, why am I going to be obsessing about God's holiness or thinking about it or, or you know, Digging in and trying to really understand it. Why, why would that be important? Yeah, Robert? We want to worship his goodness and his holiness and his perfection. And he, he's worthy of it. Okay. Worthy of worship. Um, I did not give Robert a little 3 by 5 card with that answer. Uh, ahead of time, but that is the answer. Uh, uh, worthy, we we want to understand God's worthiness because we have we we, we it, it's hardwired in us to worship something. We want to worship God. You know, to really understand worshiping God, we have to understand His worthiness, and perfection and holiness help us understand that. So we, we see that God is love. Well, uh, God is love in his essence. Uh, and that's um, a communicable attribute in that we can love, but God is love. And you can say that about any of the other attributes of God, his holiness. We can be holy in the sense of allowing our lives to reflect our relationship with Christ. But God is holy. He is transcendent. He is separate. He is righteous. He is merciful. He is faithful. He is wise. He is good. He is gracious. He is just. Uh, those, those, and every one of those characteristics or traits or attributes, he is fully and completely and perfectly. So, uh, and so if we understand that, then we're on our way to understanding God being worthy of our worship. Any questions, thoughts on that? All right, we're making good progress. One of the attributes of God that is not communicable, communicable is actually perfection, despite Matthew 5, 8. We are not perfect. You've, you've said that. We are not perfect, but we rely upon our relationship with Christ to be presented to God without fault and at, at, at the time of judgment. And that's our perfection. In the meantime, we want to follow Christ. And so it looks like we're striving for perfection. It might look that way on the outside. But if our main focus is our relationship with Christ, then it's not striving for perfection. It's living out our relationship with Christ. And that's a relationship, not a rule book. And, and, and that's, a, that's a key difference that we're really, we're, we're moving toward that kind of key difference. Another difference, and this is uh, to go back to something that I think Dan was talking about, is 
Another incommunicable attribute is omniscience. We can't know everything. But you know, it's kind of funny, back in the Middle Ages, uh, or me in medieval uh, uh, times, uh, there's some, some scholars and philosophers were, were looking at this and they said, hey, wait a minute. Uh, this is pretty cool. I can do something God can't. I can learn. God can't learn. He already knows it. I can learn. And, uh, and so they're kind of saying, like, you know, I got something going on because I can learn. And then, of course, they thought about it and they say, wait a minute, that isn't a deficiency on God's part. <laughs> it's a lack on my part. Um, but it is true. Uh, if you want to say, you can do something God can't do, say, you can learn. And well, you can sin too. I, I didn't put that on my slide, but maybe I should. But I don't want to. I don't want to hold that out as a as a as a good idea. So we've been talking about the attributes of God because it helps us understand God being worthy of our worship. Uh, but I I commend to you and recommend to you uh, a study on the attributes of God. Uh, many of us are attending an adult Bible study here at Cornerstone Baptist Church on. Sunday mornings uh, where we're studying the attributes of God uh, and uh, being led by our associate pastor, Dave Dunham. And, uh, and I have to agree with Eric Johnson, or actually A.W. Tozer, the study of the attributes of God, far from being dull and heavy, may for the enlightened Christian be a sweet and absorbing spiritual exercise. And so I, I recommend that too. And what does it do? It leads us to worship. That's the fun part, is that we think we're just gaining information, but as we're gaining information, we're understanding more and more the majesty and the awesomeness of God, and that's leading us toward worship. So, any questions, comments on that? All right, let's talk about the Trinity. Uh, how many have, had, have heard or have had people or heard of people maybe on the radio or whatever uh, quibble about the Trinity. Trinity's not in the Bible. The Trinity's an invention. Uh, the Trinity is, is uh, you know, uh, is a uh, deficient effort to explain God. How many have heard those kinds of criticisms? Okay, it's about everybody in the room. Okay. Um, I want to talk about that a little bit because that also goes to the heart of the differences between Christianity and uh, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. So let's get right into it. Uh, let's, let's go, go for the, the, the core of the thing. Uh, this diagram, which is, you see in all kinds of different uh, uh, fonts and designs and art and so on, uh, but the essence is the Father is not the Son, the Father is not the Holy Spirit, the Son is not the Holy Spirit, but the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. Uh, and um, it's a, really a brilliant way to at least depict a concept that's really kind of hard to understand. Uh, but the, here's the problem. Anytime somebody wants to change this around or cross this out and turn a knot into an is or whatever, it just gets messed up and it doesn't work at all. Not only does it not work in the, narr the meta-narrative of the Bible, but it just doesn't work Rationally, so if you think, well, I, I, I can't understand it. It doesn't make sense. Well, try, try changing it and see if that helps. It only makes it worse. So that tells me that's one way of telling me that. Well, this is at least a helpful way to be thinking about the tree, the Trinity. Now, what you uh, uh, probably should know, you might not know, but you probably should, is that the idea of the Trinity 
has, uh, or, or, or at least the three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and, and in Mormon speak, we, we would say, Latter-day Saints would say Holy Ghost, which is an older sort of King James way of saying it, uh, uh, is that there has been a change from the time of the Book of Mormon until right before Joseph Smith died. Uh, and, and it went from one understanding of God to an entirely different understanding of God. And, uh, and, I, and, and so if you have a conversation with a, a Latter-day Saint, it's helpful to make sure that you understand which idea of Father, Son, and Holy Ghost are, are we talking about? Are we comparing it to the early Book of Mormon version or the later version? So let me just, let me just throw that out a little bit. Some of this is in the book. Uh, but in the Book of Mormon, uh, in a section called uh, Second Nephi or Two Nephi, uh, it said, and this is, um, uh, it says, and now behold, my beloved brethren, this is the way, and there's none, none other way, nor name given under heaven whereby man can be saved in the kingdom of God. And now behold, this is the doctrine of Christ, and the only and true doctrine of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, which is one God without end. That's in the Book of Mormon. That actually, I mean, it's odd. There's some things in there that you could kind of work with and say, I'm not so sure. But just as a first impression, it's not terrible. I mean, it, it, it's referring to the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. It's talking about salvation. Uh, it's connecting that to the doctrine of Christ. Uh, there's, there's some echoes of truth there. And if you look uh, in the Articles of Faith of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saint, Saints, which uh, is now uh, published as part of the Pearl of Great Price, the Articles of Faith includes this idea, we believe in God, the Eternal Father, and in His Son, Jesus Christ, and in the Holy Ghost. The, the problem that, that you have with the Book of Mormon's present, presentation of God, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, as it's said there, is that... Uh, I picked I, the, the second the uh, second Nephi verse I picked out was the I want to say the cleanest. It it gets it gets a little weird as you go through, and over time you end up with what we could call uh, modalism, or sometimes it's called Sabellianism, uh, and 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 that is that they really are conflated to one God, and so you don't get the is not. Uh, in the in the uh, uh, this part, the, you cross out the is nots, and you have the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God, but you don't have the the, the differentiation between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. They're kind of one and the same. And in some uh, in some ways, is Sabellianism or modalism. And by the way, that's a that's a that's alive and well. Modalism is alive and alive and well in some uh, expressions today of churches. Uh, and so uh, you've got to be really, and, and including some very popular TV pastors and mega churches and so on, you've got to be really careful about that. Um, but in some expressions, it's sequential modalism where uh, God the Father is kind of the Old Testament God, and then Jesus Christ is the New Testament God, you know, while he was alive and then died and resurrected. And then ever since, and in the church age, you have the Holy Spirit God. Uh, but it's all the same God. It's just God is expressed in different ways. That's modalism. Uh, and that is, is really, even though it sounds good when I read that verse from 2 Nephi, or 3 Nephi, whatever it was, uh, it's really modalism. Any questions on that?
Yeah, yeah, Robert. They're, they're kind of saying that there's three different gods. Not, not at this point. Not in the Book of Mormon. They're just saying it's all one God. But you're getting ahead of me, like you always do, Robert. You're always, you're always jumping ahead of me. Uh, because, what, uh, and, and, uh, because as time went on, so the Book of Mormon was written in 1829, published in 1830. Uh, but in uh, 1844, uh, right before, not long before he was killed, uh, in, a, in, a, in a sermon called Sermon in the Grove, uh, Joseph Smith articulated what, what, what uh, the idea of God had been morphed into. And, uh, and this is what he said. Many men say there is one God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost are only one God. I say that is a strange God anyhow. Three in one and one in three, exclamation point. It is a curious organization. All are to be crammed into one God according to sectarianism. Sectarianism is, is a reference to Christians. Okay. Uh, all are to be crammed into one God according to sectarianism. It would make the biggest God in all the world. Well, actually, it makes even bigger God than the world. It makes a bigger God than the universe, but that's okay. Um, uh, he would be a giant or a monster. So this is, Robert, what you were talking about. This is uh, moving it toward uh, tritheism. So we started out with uh, with uh, basically monotheism, but, but modalistic monotheism, and it, and it morphed into tritheism, so we have three separate gods. And he was offended by the idea of literally, he said, cramming them into one god. So when, um, you know, in the, if you remember in the early part of, of the book that we're going through, uh, there was terminology. Well, when you use the word God in when you're interacting with a Latter-day Saint, it's really important that we figure out which God are we talking about. Are we talking about our idea of God, the, the God that, that maps back to the Bible? And by the way, uh, Eric does a wonderful job of providing references for you to go back and, and understand the Trinity in the New Testament and the Old Testament. Um, but would you want to go back to, to the biblical articulation of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? Uh, b being all God, but also being separate persons, or in interacting with a Latter-day Saint, are we talking about the Book of Mormon version of God, or are we talking about the Sermon in the Grove version? Because three different versions of God, you've got to know which one you're talking about. Uh, and and, uh, and, and, and if, if, you're not, if you understand that you're not talking about the same thing, that, that, that helps you understand the conversation. Okay, so the conversation is we're not, we're not starting with a common understanding of God. Okay, check, got that. We have a different understanding of God. Any questions, comments about that? Uh, uh, so um, uh, just to, to, to also, there's also an idea about God. Uh, that we have to understand, not just about the Trinity, but, but about God being spirit or God being physical as opposed to being spirit, God being, if you will, material. So the Bible, as we know, uh, is very clear. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. God is not human that he should lie, not a human being that he should change his mind. Nancy said as God is unchangeable. Uh, does he speak? And then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? This is from the Old Testament numbers. So, uh, and so we have this idea God is not human. God is spirit. God transcends 
Uh, and yes, Jesus took on human flesh in the incarnation, but, uh, and his resurrected body we'll, we'll see in heaven. But generally speaking, God is, a, God is spirit. God the Father is spirit, the Holy Spirit is spirit, and Jesus is spirit, but with also the uh, resurrected body. That is different than you find in, um, again, with changes. So, and I won't go through the whole thing, but really quickly, uh, Book of Mormon, Alma 31.15, holy, holy God, and it's, I find that real interesting because in our understanding as we read the Old Testament and the New Testament, how many holies do we usually see? Three. Holy, holy, holy. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Um, here we have holy, holy, just two. Believe that thou art God, and we believe that thou art holy, and that thou wast, wast a spirit, you were a spirit, and that thou art a spirit, and that thou wilt be a spirit forever. So the Book of Mormon, 1829, published in 1830, acknowledges God as a spirit. But uh, in 1843, Doctrine and Covenants uh, 130, it's one of their four uh, books, uh, section 130 uh, 30, uh, in verse 20, DNC 130 verse 22. The Father has a body of flesh and bones as tangible as man's. The Son also. But the Holy Ghost has not a body of flesh and bones, but is a personage of spirit. Were it not so, the Holy Ghost would not dwell in us. This is 1843. Now I understand the Holy Holy. I got two spirits, or two, or rather two, uh, two bodies, and then the spirit is just a spirit. So, and this, this actually, even though it doesn't show up until later, uh, in later Mormonism, it actually goes all the way back to 1830, uh, because it's part of the narrative of the, what's called the first vision. When, uh, and there's, very, there's nine different versions, or 11, depending on how you count them, or seven, depending on how you count them. There are various versions of the first vision that Joseph had. Uh, most of the versions, uh, versions he refers to an angel appearing for, before him. In one version in his home, own handwriting, he refers to Christ uh, appearing before him. And in the official version, which is actually one of the oldest versions, so it's many, many years after supposedly the event took place, he uh, refers to God the Father as, in human form and God the Son in human form. And that's the official version that got put into the Pearl of Great Price. So when you see pictures of uh, uh, the first vision, you will see this, this sort of idea of God the Father and God the Son. I, I, you didn't know that God the Father looks a lot like his son. Uh, but that's, and these are official paintings from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Um, but that's the idea, that the, the God the Father and God the Son are both flesh. Okay, any questions about that? Which means that, that God is not omniscient, omnipresent. God the Father is not omnipresent. And so they say, well, that's why you have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit kind of reports back. The Holy Spirit is the connection. Uh, so, so if you want to look at the key differences that we've talked about, God is one in essence. It is the only God who exists. That's monotheism. Mormonism, three separate gods, Father, Son, and Spirit, who are one in will and in purpose and in love. And LDS missionaries and other LDS, they, they want to emphasize that. No, they're one in purpose. 
um, but we would want to say uh, that they are one God. And then also, God is spirit. That's the Christian, Judeo-Christian view. Uh, Mormonism, God has a body of flesh and bones as tangible as a human body. Any questions on any of that? Yeah, Robert. Uh, another difference that they believe is, uh, I, I think, is uh, we believe God created them. Right, here, that's right. And they think that they already existed. God, uh, God organized. Right, we, we say God created in the beginning. God, right. uh, there was nothing, and then God right. created. Uh, ex nihilo, out of nothing. And you're right, um, uh, the, uh, the LDS view is that God created, that God organized. And they'll use the word create, but they really mean organized. If you, if you look carefully or you ask them more carefully what they're talking about, uh, they mean organized. I am not going to go through the, uh, the various responses to anti-Trinitarian arguments. The arguments basically the word Trinity is not in the Bible. The doctrine is confusing and Jesus prayed in the garden. Um, I, I'm going to leave that to you. It's, it's, it's described well in the book um, and I, I'm not, uh, I'm not, I don't want to take that much uh, time on it. Um, so if you want to read just a response to those objections, they're in the book. And you can find other, there's other objections and other responses that you can learn about. But just to kind of sum up, uh, uh, Christians would say there is one eternal God, the Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God, and then the Father is not the Son or the Holy Spirit, the Son is not the Father, and so on. Uh, and as uh, Robert was saying, we also look at the Trinity, all of the Trinity, as creator. Um, and so the Father is creator, the Son is creator, the Holy Spirit is creator, and uh, you can, you can uh, find certainly uh, some support by going through the Old Testament and the New Testament. Any questions on the Trinity? Question, yes. I, I actually have a question to back up on, on perfection of God. Yes, perfection of God. Did, did, so what is the difference between how we look at God's perfectness and how Mormons look at God? Oh, okay, we're getting to that. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's, that's next. That's our next topic, being like God or being God-like. That's No, don't be sorry. That's great. I love it when we're moving along and we're all kind of in the same boat moving in the direction. That's fantastic. I love it. It's, it's a God thing. That's all I can say. So... Being like God is our third topic. Uh, and you can see that we're, we're, we're heading toward worship. So we're, we're, in the, we're going in the right direction. Um, but being like God is a big deal. Not just when we talk about uh, Mormons or the Church of Jesus Christ, any religion, any religion is an effort to be perfect or to achieve a certain level uh, whether it's a transcendence level, a nirvana level, but it's an idea to move toward a kind of perfection. Every religion has that in common. In the garden, the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, and her name wasn't Shirley, uh, but, uh, sorry, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, that is the fruit of uh, the, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, your eyes will be open and you will be like God. King James, you will be as gods, uh, but you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So, in the Garden of Eden, what did it, what did it mean to be like God? 
What did that mean? What was, this, what was the idea? Okay. Knowledge. Thank you. Yes. Knowledge. Knowledge including good and evil. Bingo. That's it. What else? What else being like God? Well, that's the key one. There were, your eyes will be open. Your eyes will be more. Thank you. See, you see more. So eyes open. Okay. All right. All right. So those are the key ones. Let me, let me match up what you've just said with the three, um, the three characteristics that, that we've been kind of emphasizing. And so the serpent is promising a, a, a progression toward the attributes of God. And we already said that perfection is one of the attributes of God. Uh, we also said love, wisdom, goodness, and so on. So the serpent is actually promising a progression toward the attributes of God. That is exaltation. I mean, that's a good word. It's a loaded word because it is very much to do with, with LDS uh, theology. But really, that's the word. To be like God is to be exalted. And so, in a, in a progression toward the exalted. So, uh, we said that God's, one of the key uh, attributes is God's omnipotence. Well, um, the serpent is offering more control. You can decide what's good and evil. You can make your own decisions. You don't need God. You don't need to obey God. God gave you one command. Toss it aside. Put yourself in charge. You be you. <laughs> and, uh, and so more control. Also, more, more knowledgeable. More knowledgeable. And, and also, omnibenevolent, you are your own moral authority. So what, what the serpent is promising, the serpent is promising to make us more like God. I mean that, and that's that's a I want to say a technical way of unpacking what he was saying. But you 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 guys nailed it when you when you said knowledge, you said control. That's exactly what the serpent was offering when he said to be more like God. A key, I keep talking about key differences between Christianity and Mormonism. The key difference between Christianity and Mormonism is Genesis chapter 3 and this idea of being like God. Because the whole promise, and every LDS missionary talks about this potential and this promise, the whole promise is that you can be exalted, that you can be elevated. And in order to make that promise, we want to say, we want to move you, we want to move you up and make you be more like God, we want to push God down because did God really say that you were going to die? So we're going to, we're going to uh, challenge God's word, uh, make, be skeptical of God, distrustful of God's word. We're going to be distrustful of God's word. We're going to lower God. We're going to elevate human beings. That, well, that's why the serpent is referred to as Satan, because that is the promise of Genesis 3 that the serpent makes. There is a, a little quip 
a little couplet that unfortunately some Latter-day Saints find annoying. Um, and so I don't use it if I'm talking to all these, because I'm not, I'm not trying to annoy anybody, I'm really not. I'm trying to help them figure out for themselves what's, what's going on, what is. But it's important that you know this couplet, that you understand it, because it summarizes the LDS church response to the serpent's promise. And the quip uh, it, uh, it goes like this. As man now is, God once was. As God now is, man may be. So what we're doing is we're saying, we say we're going to elevate the human being. As God now is, man may be. You will, can, you will be like God. Okay, But when we're pushing down God, we're not only challenging and, uh, and arguing with God's word, we're arguing with God's attributes, with who God really is. Because in the, in the, in the LDS regime, God, referred to as Heavenly Father, was at one time a mortal being. And went through and, and, and was born a spirit child of Heavenly Grandfather and came to a world and passed the test and wound up in the highest level, uh, the, the third level of the third uh, realm of glory or kingdom, which is the highest level of the celestial kingdom, and continued to progress until he became our Heavenly Father. So God was a mortal and became exalted. And, uh, that, and so that, that's, that's pushing God down. God, God wasn't always God, as, as we understand God. God at one time was a mortal. And sometimes when you uh, want to have this discussion with a member of the LDS Church or a Latter-day Saint or even a former Latter-day Saint, Oh, they'll say, well, we don't, that's not, that was old, that was Lorenzo Snow, that was, you know, he was whatever, the fifth president or the fifth prophet or whatever, that was a long time ago, we don't really do that. That's not true. As Eric Johnson points out, you go to the LDS Church website, you look up the Gospel Topics essay on this subject, it says, it says the divine nature that humans inherit can de be developed and become like their heavenly fathers. So they want to say, they, won't, they, don't want, they want to say, well, we're not really saying you become God. We're saying you become like God. Well, last time I looked, that's exactly what the serpent said in the garden. To be like God. And I'm, frankly, I'm not sure of the difference. If you have all the attributes of God and you're like God, how are you not a God? So, but I'm not, that's not even a conversation worth having. I'm just saying I'm, that's what comes to my mind. So any questions, comments on that? Yes. If God was immortal and he just did really well, mm -hmm. who, who said, oh, okay, you should be God now? I mean, how does that even work? This yeah. is not logical at all. Yeah, okay, so there's two things that make that illogical. One is, pardon, yeah, one, one is, it's, it's, it, you're saying it's illogical uh, that, uh, you know, who, who said you, you advance? Uh, 
and so there's there's two things. It's really maybe just one thing, and that and that is that philosophically that means that there are laws in place about righteousness and good and evil that precede God, at least precede our Heavenly Father. Because only if our Heavenly Father conforms to those good rules of right and wrong does the Heavenly Father qualify for exaltation. But that still doesn't answer, the, actually there is two parts, and it still doesn't answer the second part. Who created this exaltation system in the first place? And that's a great question. I have not seen an answer to that question. And I'm afraid that uh, I'm going to find myself looking it up, but I don't, I don't think there's an answer. I really don't. It's, it's, it's too foundational. And that's just like the idea of an eternity past is, is too foundational. It's, it's, uh, it, 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 it's, you can't grasp it. Uh, Nancy also last time uh, brought up the subject of blacks uh, in the LDS church, at least up until 1978. And I, th I thought, since we're talking about God and exaltation, let's revisit that topic very briefly. In Doctrines and, Doctrine and Covenants 131.1 to 4, it teaches that there are three sub-kingdoms within the celestial kingdom. So you have three kingdoms. Uh, you have the, the telestial, the terrestrial, and celestial. And I might have gotten the lower two wrong. But the celestial, the high one, actually has three subdivisions. And to enter uh, the highest of these degrees in the celestial kingdom is to be exalted. That's what this idea of exalt. That's the, that's the goal. Um, and uh, such exaltation comes to those who receive the higher ordinances of the church. Ordinances of the church including the temple endowment and then being sealed in marriage for time and eternity whether on earth or in the hereafter. Uh, the temple endowments is a, is a uh, uh, the ordinances, the temple endowment is one of the ordinances and it's basically how you become an official Mormon, an official member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. It involves a lot of covenants, they keep changing the rituals, um, uh, you, you know, the, some, most of the rituals have their, are, are very similar to what you find in Freemasonry and, and it's, it's a lot of secrecy and all of that. Uh, and then there's also this idea of being sealed. Uh, so when uh, a Latter-day Saint says sealed in marriage for time and eternity, what they mean is I'm sealed to my spouse for time, in other words, on this earth, and then also for eternity. So I'm married for eternity. And only if I go through the temple endowment and I'm married for time and eternity do I get to be exalted? Uh, and, and, the, and the gotcha there is that only until 1978, blacks were not allowed to participate in the temple, temple endowments or sealed in marriage, so they couldn't be exalted. And so then what? Well, the best they could get would be to get to the celestial kingdom, but not to the highest level to be exalted, so what would they be? Well, they would be the same as unmarried people. They would be servants to the exalted ones. So... Uh, I just wanted to kind of, when we talk about God and, and uh, heaven, I just wanted to talk about that. And by the way, that, that actually draws from the Book of Mormon, which is still in the Book of Mormon. I mean, they have made changes in the Book of Mormon. I'll talk about that in just about three seconds, um, which, which is kind of weird. It was like, well, it was written in English. Yes, it was a translation 
of uh, so-called Reformed Egyptian. We don't have the Reformed Egyptian, so how can we retranslate it and come up with different words? Just, it's just asking. I'm just asking. So in the Book of Mormon, there's this, these uh, stories of the Lemon, Lamanites who displeased God because of their iniquity. God, uh, the Lord God did cause a skin of blackness to come upon them. Is, is that offensive? And it's in the Book of Mormon. Today, if a missionary comes to your door, you can turn to 2 Nephi, chapter 5, verse 21, and there it is. Later in the story, when the Lamanites became Christians, their curse was taken from them and their skin became white like unto the Nephites. Uh, and, uh, and then in Nephi, uh, in, further down in, ch in uh, chapter 30, verse 6, originally referred to conversion to Christianity, bringing about a white and delightsome people. And they, in 1981, they decided that, that Joseph Smith mistranslated it. And what he really meant to say was it was a pure and delightsome people. So when we talk about the exaltation, um, I think it's important that we understand uh, that there, there's a two-tier system that still exists today in terms of this description of what darker skin and, and, and these, these descriptions, this whole story, this had to do with Native Americans being darker skinned or lighter skinned. But it, dark, dark skin, uh, it, it's very clear that that was a punishment from God. So uh, offense, as offensive as one could probably get. We've already talked about uh, the idea of God being immortal, being a mortal. Uh, and so uh, Eric is saying there's been much speculation about God, what God was like when God was immortal. Uh, and some have even, uh, a lot of times, Latter-day Saints don't want to talk about that. But a question that's on the table was, does that mean God sinned? Which, again, uh, as long as you're throwing out some blasphemy, let's, 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 you know, let's, have, let's have at it. From a Christian perspective, but from a Mormon perspective, there are, you know, a lot of talking points that try to work away from these things, but these are, these are words that are still in the Book of Mormon right now. The Bible does not teach a progression toward God-likeness or exaltation. Can we, are we okay with that? I mean, that's, okay. Uh, to suggest that God could have been a sinful human being who worshipped a grandfather God in a previous mortal existence is a blasphemous concept to Christians. After all, the Bible teaches that God is eternally self-existent and remains unblemished throughout eternity, and, there, and God cannot be attempted by sin. And there are some references there that you might be familiar with. So a quick summary. God is omnipresent, is not limited by spatial restraints, whereas in Mormonism, God's body is localized in space and is not bodily omnipresent. God is spirit versus God is a body of flesh and bones. God origi originated everything out of nothing, Robert, ex nihilo, as opposed to God organized the universe out of pre-existing material, ex materia. God is the only true God in the universe. All other gods are false. And in this case, multiple gods existed before Elohim, in other words, our Heavenly Father, as it's understood in the Mormon tradition. Uh, there will be other gods who will follow him. Any questions on any of that? Let's take it around the barn and go on the home stretch. Just talk about worship. We, we human beings, we worship. Uh, we love to watch the Olympics. We love the perfection, the competition, uh, the victory. Um, 
when I was uh, growing up, when I was in grade school, uh, I, I, I locked in on one particular uh, Olymp, uh, Olympic athlete uh, named Jesse Owens, and I read everything I could read about Jesse. I, it just thrilled me that at the 1936 Olympics, which was supposed to be a showcase for the master race, uh, Jesse Owens won four gold medals, and um, after he won those gold medals, Hitler insisted there wouldn't be any more award ceremonies. So that you couldn't see who was, you couldn't see a German sitting on the, uh, standing on the second or the third step, or not even on there. Uh, and, uh, and, 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 and I, in, in a sense, you could say I, Jesse Owens was an, was an idol. And we've we said it in a good way, he was an idol. It means I idolized him. Uh, I'm just autobiographical. Another uh, idol in my life was Willie Mays. Uh, he was considered not only the greatest center fielder of all time, uh, but maybe after Babe Ruth, the greatest baseball player of all time. Uh, I, just, I just loved everything about Willie Mays. Another one that I grew up uh, admiring greatly was Cassius Clay. Well, he was Cassius Clay when he lived in Louisville and went to the Catholic school where my uncle was a, a priest in that, in that parish. Uh, and uh, the, the Catholic religion didn't stick, okay? We can, we can say that when he became Muhammad Ali. <laughs> uh, but uh, probably the most famous athlete of the 20th century, undisputed heavyweight champion of the world three times over. We admire, I just, I mean, these are people I idolize, like I just couldn't get enough. This is just amazing. Um, of course, for a lot of people my age, it was, it was Beatlemania that, uh, that took over. Uh, there they are in the Ed Sullivan Show in February of 1964, and there they are in Olympic Stadium uh, in the fall of 1964. Celebrity worship. There's actually, uh, there's actually uh, a syndrome it, 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 uh, that's, uh, that's called celebrity worship syndrome. And... Um, and so what are some characteristics? It's one-sided, non-reciprocal relationship. It's actually a form of OCD. It says that as many as one-third of the general public may experience celebrity worship on a borderline pathological level. I think what I just showed you, my personal idols, I think you would agree I would be in that one-third. Uh, <laughs> symptoms of intense disorder. So it's not actually called a disorder in the DSM. Uh, the Diagnostic and Statistical Man, uh, Manual of Disorders, but it's called a syndrome, which is a first cousin to a disorder. Um, and so, what are some symptoms? Appearance, people, you know, they, they well, you know, they, they they dress like them. I mean, how many people when the Beatle mania? How many kids start growing their hair out long? You know, mop tops. Uh, and uh, you know, cosmetic surgery sometimes. How many, how many Barbies and how many Elvises are running around with plastic surgery and everything else? Uh, stalking, comparing others to comparing others to the celebrity. Negative impact on their own relationship and finances. And uh, and actually, Nancy, who was uh, a teacher uh, at one point uh, in, when she was in between her accounting career, uh, had a student uh, who was obsessed with Barry Manilow. Um, and, uh, and Nancy, just real quickly, just tell, tell us a little bit about, about that. Well, I was teaching at a business college, and I had this student for a whole year, for two semesters, 
I'll just hold it. I, I was teaching at a business college, and I had a, a, a student um, for a whole year. It was two semesters, and she was one of these students who came in early and liked to talk to you and stayed late and liked to talk to you and shared a lot about her life. And she was totally obsessed with Barry Manilow. She went to all his concerts all over the country. She had this Barry Manilow jacket. She came to me. She wanted to have a, a, an exam rescheduled so that she could go decorate his dressing room for his birthday. And it, it, it was, she was so over the top. And the, I think it was the last week of class, the second semester, so I'd spent a lot of time with this woman. Um, she said something about her kids. And I, she was probably in her 30s. And I said, you have children? And she said, yeah, I have three kids. Like, I've never heard about your children, but I've heard about Barry Manilow every time. And she was, she was obsessed with him and even swore that he looked at her from the TV, like when he, she saw him. On, I mean, this woman, and she was very bright, and apparently it turns out she was married and had kids and apparently was functional in life, but she was over the top, and Bert made a um, no, not no. very good name for her. No, no, we're not going. We're not going there. We're not going there. And 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 you know, we're not going to try to calculate how much she spent uh, on on that pursuit. Uh, we are told in the Bible, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Um, and so. And so we, we see worship. I mean, idolatry, idolatry is really worship of a false god. And, and we can admire, we can admire, but when it gets to the point like you've described this person's uh, obsession with, with Barry Manilow, it's, it, it, it's taking away from relationships, it's taking away from finances, it's, it's, it's sapping energy, and it's, it's really worshiping an idol. And uh, we're to flee from that, but... But we, we understand about worshiping God. So, so what, how, would you, how would you sort of define, what does it mean to worship God? Reverence. Okay. Honor. Reverence. Honor. Honor. Okay. Okay. Obedience. Okay. Yep. So know him. Him, excellent. Okay, yeah, yeah, Robert. He's got to be number one. Okay, so number one priority over everything else. Everything. I mean, everything. Yeah, yeah, everything. Health, family, finances, yeah. everything submitted to God, or He's not God. He's jealous. Yeah, well, jealous he is a jealous God. He should be a jealous God because He is God and He is worthy of worship. Of worship. Okay. Uh, one way the Bible kind of helps define a lot of this in, in maybe one word uh, is the word ascribe. Ascribe. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly being. So the psalmist is talking to the angels, and he is saying, ascribe to the Lord, angels, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. So I, it is like an Olympic athlete in the sense that I, I'm admiring, but here now I'm saying I'm, I'm ascribing all glory and all strength to God. Ascribe to the Lord the glory. Do his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. In other words, acknowledge that he is separate from you. I'm not like him. 
despite what the serpent might have wanted to invite me to be. I am not like God. And, uh, and so God is holy. He is splendid in his holiness. So that one verse, for me at least, helped me kind of summarize a lot of things that go through my mind when we talk about worship. But, uh, but as, I, as I've talked about already with the high idea of a human being and low idea of God, um, worship is pure or base as the worshiper enters high or low thoughts of God. So if I reduce God to something like a human being, something manageable, something I, I you know, punch my ticket or pay my dollar or whatever, say my particular prayer or go to a particular uh, ritual, participate in a particular ritual or pay a tithe or whatever it is, and I punch my ticket, I get something back. It's a vending machine that lowers God. Um, A.W. Tozer said, I believe there is scarcely an error in doctrine or a failure in applying Christian ethics that cannot be traced finally to imperfect and ignoble thoughts about God. Kind of hard to argue with that. Uh, If if we reduce God's glory and God's sovereignty, then we're we're on our way to error. Um, All right. Um, So... uh, we're talking about a high view of God that we see in the Bible, uh, a Mormon concept of God that is he is a contingent being who was at one time not actually God. In fact, one time, at one time didn't even exist except as an intelligence of, of some kind um, uh, and then became a spirit child of a of heavenly grandfather. Uh, limited being that is not omniscient, omnipotent, or omnipresent one of many gods, a being who is confined to the laws and principles of a universe he did not create. Um, And as opposed to that, uh, we have uh, uh, a high view of God that we find in the Bible. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Um, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. So we have, in, in, the, in the Christian view, we have a lower view of human beings, a higher view of God. In the LDS view or the Mormon view, we have a lower view of God than the Christian view and a higher view of human beings than the Christian view. So there, there's your differences right there, the essential differences that we summed up in, in the topics for tonight. Any questions, comments on that? Well, it's a, according to the Mormons, it's an attainable goal to become a God little G. It, 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 is, an, it is an attainable goal. Um, unless you're black before 1978. No, I mean, uh, and, uh, and it is an attainable goal, unless you're, uh, unless you're not married, right? Right, yep. yeah. And, and unless, you have not, unless you're not temple worthy. And, and uh, next week when we talk about uh, salvation and justification, we'll be talking a little bit about temple worthiness. Uh, I will mention just one thing real quickly is that in the Transition to Hope uh, platform, the YouTube channel, and also the website. Uh, I have what's called a nutshell, which is a, about a half an hour presentation on the idea of shrinking God. So I just mentioned that if 
uh, you might find that of interest. But for, for today, we have talked about God's perfection and holiness. Uh, we've considered how the Trinity folds into that. Uh, we've, we've understood that we, uh, we are not like God um, as such. We are made in his image, but we're sinners, and we are in desperate need of the, the, the perfection and holiness that was lived out by Jesus Christ. And, uh, and, and, and for his trouble, he was killed. He was nailed to a cross. He was killed uh, in, in our behalf and rose again from the dead, conquering sin and death in perfection. And so we can say with the elders around the throne of God, we can say, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. So that, uh, that's a good way of, of uh, sort of ending our thought process tonight. Next week, we will take on two chapters again. We will look at chapter 5, Jesus, Savior of his people, and the resurrection, cornerstone of Christianity. We'll take on both of those chapters. I love talking about the resurrection. I'll be talking about Gary Habermas again. Um, uh, and um, in the meantime, I uh, encourage you to read those two chapters and even go online to introducingchristianity.com. Take a look at uh, the, the answers that he provides to the uh, discussion questions. Uh, and in the meantime, if you uh, are interested in uh, uh, keeping up with what we're doing, we encourage you to go to the YouTube channel and subscribe. Uh, that helps us. It help, helps make our content more accessible to others as well. And if you would like to leave any comments or questions or criticisms or anything, uh, make use of our contact page at transitiontohope.org. In the meantime, look forward to meeting you, uh, to seeing you next week uh, as we talk about the risen Christ, Savior of His people. Thank you.